a few months ago we went through the, the letter of Paul to the church uh, at Philippi, the letter to the Philippians, which is the letter that was written to the church that we are considering in this chapter, uh, on the local, the local church that came about from the work of Paul that we are considering in this chapter. And in that letter, Paul talks, uh, not once but twice, about the citizenship of the believers. He says that our country, our city, our citizenship is in heaven from where we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he encourages them in this way so that they would wait for, for the, so that they would put their eyes and their thoughts on the spiritual realities of the heaven to come, where our lowly bodies will indeed be transformed into the likeness of his body, of his glorious body. Paul so often emphasizes the citizenship in heaven. But in this passage today, we see as well that we are not to despise our earthly citizenship. When we are born, we are born citizens of a country, whether because we were born in that land or because our parents were our nationals of that land. My youngest was born in, in this country, but he's not a, an Englishman. He's a Portuguese uh, citizen because me and Sally, we're Portuguese. And Paul often looks to the, his earthly citizenship as well. And Paul had one, more than one earthly citizenship, in fact. He was both Jewish, an Israelite, and he was a Roman national. He was a Roman. And he used his rights and he fulfilled his duties uh, according to his earthly citizenship in the light of eternity, in light of his citizenship in heaven. Last week we considered uh, the conversion of the Philippian jailer, how the, uh, this came about, the circumstances surrounding it, the, the evidences of his salvation, how uh, the prison cell was shaken by an earthquake, but that earthquake did not only shake the prison cell, it shook the very foundations of the heart of that Philippian jailer, that he asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul answered quickly, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not only him, but his family also believed and was saved. And then he, we saw also some of the, the fruits of his conversion. He quickly uh, took care of Paul and Silas, dressed up the, their wounds, washed them and, and brought them uh, into his home. And in, this, in today's section, we, we consider how Luke concludes the, the record of the Apostle Paul's ministry, missionary work in Philippi. By God's grace, God had manifested himself savingly in that city. He had saved Lydia, a God-fearing woman, and her household. He had saved, I believe, uh, the, the young fortune teller. And he had saved this Roman citizen, this Roman guard, by his grace as well. And just so we uh, contextualize ourselves, Luke is here recording 
the events of the second missionary journey of Paul. From, from this section onwards, Luke will continue to record for us the ministry of Paul in Thessalonica, in Berea, uh, in uh, Athens, in Corinth. He will tell us all about uh, the, the, the record uh, of, this, of this ministry. But today, I want us to focus just on this small portion of the mission. After having saved, uh, after having been witnesses to the, the, the saving power of God and towards the Philippian jailer and the, his household, his family, we now read of what transpired next before Paul goes on to minister in other areas of Europe. So under the, the heading of the release and the departure of Paul, I want us to reflect uh, in the order to release them in the protest of Paul, in the apology of the magistrates, and finally in the, in the actions of Paul and Silas as they, they depart and, uh, from, uh, from Philippi to go into other regions of Europe. So firstly, let us consider what is recorded for us in verse 35 and 36 of chapter 16. We read of the the, the order for the departure, or the order for the release. Paul and Silas were taken care of by the, the Philippian jailer. And as dawn came, we read as it was day, as morning uh, broke through the horizon, the, the magistrates, the, the, the prefects of that uh, city, they sent their officers, they sent their bailiffs to come into the prison and say, oh, actually... Let's release Paul and Silas. Why, why they did this, we, we are not told. Why they chose to release them, there is no reason given to us in the text. It might have been that they judged it to be a, a enough, the, the previous day's floggings and a, a night spent in prison. It might have been that they realized that they had committed an atrocity an unlawful action because they did not take them to court they just dispensed with the judgment without hearing them but for some reason they feared perhaps the, 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 the consequences of their unjustifiable, unjustifiable decision without he, uh, imprisoning them without hearing them so they ordered their release and we read that the, the keeper of the prison, I believe Luke is here referring to the jailer that was saved just in the previous section. When he heard this, he rejoiced. Can you imagine being that man? The previous night, just a few hours ago, maybe he hasn't even processed all that has just happened. As he is processing it, I don't even know if he went to sleep again. As he's processing all of this, in come the, the, the Roman officers, the bailiffs, and they say, uh, the governors, the magistrates have ordered the release of Paul and Silas. He must have been overjoyed. He's witnessing miracle upon miracle that, uh, in, the, in the space of a few hours. Not only has been saved and his family, but now this wonderful providence of God. So he goes, he runs to, the, to the Paul and Silas and he tells them the good news. The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart, go in peace. 
What a wonderful provision. He must have been ecstatic. Brothers, you are free to go. The, the, the governors have ordered you to be set free. You may go in peace with the grace of God. Can you imagine the gratitude in the heart of this Philippian jailer? He must have been overjoyed at the things he has just witnessed in the space of a few hours. But more surprising, probably for him as well and for us as we read this, is that Paul does not go, does he? Paul protests. Instead of rejoicing at the good news and leaving discreetly, secretly, without making much fuss about it, as the, the rulers and the governors and, uh, or the magistrates have uh, desired and planned, he protests. He protests against the way they were treated, the floggings they received, the imprisonment that they just in, uh, endured. He protests uh, for be, having been subjected to this procedure, to this ruling, without having been appropriately judged without a formal process. And he tells them, we're Roman citizens. What you did was wrong. He demands that those who ordered, he demands that those who have brought this about upon him and Silas come themselves and lead them out. He will not take a, a secret way out. Paul claims his right as a Roman citizen. Two other times in the book of Acts, Paul will claim his right as a Roman citizen. We do not know why he was a Roman citizen. Maybe because he was born in Tarsus. Maybe because one of his parents might have been a Roman citizen. We, we are not told. But we know from scripture that he was a right of birth. He did not become a Roman citizen at some point in his life. He was a Roman citizen at the moment of his birth. Silas even less. We really don't have any kind of indication. But the fact is, and this is what I want you to understand is that this was against Roman law both to non-Roman citizens but especially to Roman citizens they were expected to be treated fairly they were expected to be given a, a, a court appearance to be presumed innocent until proven contrary they, they even when they were proved guilty Roman citizens would not undergo the more severe sh shameful acts of punishment they have different kinds of punishment for citizens of Rome than for non-citizens in the Roman Empire. Paul and Silas were indeed Roman citizens. And you might ask, and it is a, 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 an appropriate question to ask, why didn't Paul uh, uh, plead his Roman citizenship before all of this came to pass? And again, we're not told, but it's not too hard for us to imagine that the situation became so tumultuous when, those mas uh, when those, the masters of that slave girl uh, told those lies about Paul and Silas, that the situation was so tumultuous that they had no time to speak. Or even if that Paul and Silas had said something in the, in the, in the ruckus of, uh, uh, of the, the crowd, being there and being so upset and so angry, probably they couldn't, even if they said it, no one was listening. They had no way to say these things. It is not too hard to see this happening. But what we know is that in God's providence, whatever caused Paul not to be able to declare his Roman citizenship to plead 
his Roman citizenship, it was in the providence of God meant for the good of that Philippian jailer, wasn't it? It was because uh, the, no appeal was able to go through that Paul found himself, Paul and Silas found themselves in the prison and that salvation came not only to the Philippian jailer but to, the, to, the, to his household as well upon their belief. Another question is, why does Paul protest against the violation of his rights as a Roman citizen? Demanding that the governance would release him. Why does he do this? He's already being released. Why, why force the, the situation any further? It's not very gracious. My, some, some might say it's not very Christ-like, is it? It's like now he's uh, doing an act of protest. Why does he do this? It is very unlikely, I believe, that he was doing this out of resentment. It is very unlikely, I believe, that he was doing this merely to embarrass the Roman authorities. I believe that he was doing this to set the record straight. Thinking about his brethren in the church of Philippi, that he would uh, soon rather than later have to leave there. Thinking about the witness of the Christian gospel to that city, he thought it appropriate to take a stand there, to set the record straight. For the sake of his brethren who would stay in Philippi, he wanted to make sure that no further injustices like this might be brought upon his brothers and sisters. And he took the stand. He didn't want this one situation that he and Silas had just underwent to become a precedent a dangerous precedent at that to bring about punishment and hurt to the rest of the church at Philippi. I don't think this was about his honor. I don't think Paul, if anything we see from, from, from Paul's character, if we can glean anything from Paul's character through the, the New Testament, is that Paul was, is not one to be concerned about his honor to appeal because of himself, that he is one who has a huge heart for his brethren. I, I believe that Paul protested for justice, not so much for himself, but for the cause of Christ, for his brethren. Why now? Because he wanted to see this situation being set straight the record being cleared. Paul insisted. Paul was insisting that the Roman authorities did their job properly. Not to do their job unrighteously, but to do their job properly. Paul had this understanding. You don't need to read many uh, very far in his, in his letters to understand that Paul had an understanding of the Roman, uh, or of the civil authorities, as a, 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 an arm of righteousness, or a, a, as Paul himself says, as God-appointed institution responsible for the, uh, for the, for the civil uh, liberties and the, and the civil order. As God's servant, Paul says, an agent of wrath to bring punishment upon the wrongdoer. Paul, in his understanding, the Bible teaches us that governments are placed there by God to uphold the civil order. 
And in Paul's understanding, the, the government in the Philipp, at Philippi was not doing this. So even as a servant of God, a minister of God, as a citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem, he's telling them, you acted wrongly. You need to come to terms with it. You, we need to set the record straight. Paul insisted that they would come and, and do the job properly. He was insisting that the government at, the, at Philippi would dispense their dispense with their God or dispense with their authority in a God glorifying way. That they would be righteous in their God appointed task. to fulfill their lawful responsibilities. Paul will not move. And this might bring us to another question, doesn't it? The question of obedience. I know we've had to struggle through this kind of uh, thinking over the last two years, or about two years ago. When is it right to obey? When is it just for us to obey? the commands of government when is it righteous for us to obey God rather than man it is a question that we have here in front of us at this moment in time Paul doesn't seem to be very willing to obey the commands of the civil magistrates because they are acting unrighteously he wants to call them to do what is right he wants to call them to do, to, to, to fulfill their God-given authority in a righteous way. And bear in mind, bear in mind that at this time Christianity was not a world religion. It's not as if the, the Roman magistrates would go, oh, oof, we've, we've actually broken the, 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 the religious freedoms of our day by doing this. We need to, there was no religious freedom in Roman's day. In, in, the, in Ro the Roman Empire's day. Christianity was a sect, considered a sect of Judaism. No one uh, saw any kind of political weight to Christianity. So Paul wasn't acting on, on some kind of credit that Christianity had gained. Paul was acting on the, on the authority given to him by God as a citizen of heaven. And I think Paul here as well sees, I know I usually do all the application by the end, but let me just bring some, a point of application home to us here as we consider the, the way that Paul went about doing this. He understood that God placed them in that prison and that for him to get, get out of that prison in this way would be unglorifying to God, would not be glorifying to God. So he's he waits for an opportunity to display God's glory. Thomas Watson says this, A contented Christian is willing to wait at God's leisure and will not stir till God opens the door. He says, As Paul said, They have beaten us openly and condemned being Romans and have cast us into prison and now they thr uh, thrust us out privately. 
Nay, verily, but let them come themselves and fetch us out. Paul shows here a, a spirit of trust in God. He will not be delivered in such a, a, a secret manner. He wants to bring glory to God. He will not allow himself to just sneakily uh, go away in this case. God put him there and God will take him out. It's as if he's saying, no, God put me here. It's God that's going to take me out. It's going to be in God's terms. It's not going to be in my terms. I'm not going to take the first temptation to, to get out of this prison. I perceive that there is other unfinished work for God to do with me as I'm in this prison. And you can apply that to any of our afflictions, can we? We go through afflictions. God places us in that prison. And the, the, the flesh tells us, the flesh tells us that we, we have this way out. And we know that this way out is not glorifying to God. That this is not the way that God would want us to get out of that affliction. Let us learn from Paul to wait upon him. We'd rather be in prison by the mercy of God, by the providence of God, than work our way into heaven by our own hands. That is the nature of the Christian. That is the nature of the Christian. Joseph Carroll, he says, the stronger we are in faith, in love, in humility, the more quietly we lie bound in prison. Faith seeks ease and release only in God. To say, Lord, loosen me, is a duty. To loosen ourselves is both our sin and our punishment. I believe we can learn from Paul in this. We can learn from Paul how to bear with our afflictions. When, when trials and temptations come, when we find ourselves in difficulties in the day of trouble, we need to learn that we are not to take the first and easiest way out. We are to choose the God-glorifying way out. God himself will loosen us. So the, the governors came. The governors heard this, they feared, they were alarmed, they hastened, they ran, they, 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 the word here in, the, in, in verse 39, they pleaded with them, doesn't convey quite the meaning of the original word in Greek, it is a, a word for apology, it is, it is, it's not just them kind of having a tete-a-tete -tete, uh, at the same level and, and they're kind of discussing the terms of the release, it's like they are, they are apologizing, look, we, 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 we really made a mistake, we really, we really messed things up, please forgive us, can you just go and not make any more fuss? Can you just go and, and, and not uh, bring us under, under any kind of condemnation by our, the Roman Emperor? There are records, ample records of Roman history that tells us about these kind of things. When Roman governors would break the, or would not dispense with the law, in a, uh, uh, with the Roman law accordingly, uh, we have records of Roman officials being put out of office and being punished. 
We have records even of colonies, cities that were Roman colonies, losing their status as Roman colonies because the, the governors of that city were not being righteous according to the Roman law. They were not applying the Roman law perfectly. So they, they, are, they have cause to be alarmed. They just punished two Roman citizens in a very unrighteous way, unlawful way. So they come and they plead and they, and they say, please, please, remove yourself. Go away, don't, don't cause us any more trouble. Don't bring any more trouble to us. We shouldn't have done the way we did to you. Just go. It's kind of like that situation with, uh, with Moses and Pharaoh, isn't it? Where, the, where the, the servants of Pharaoh come and say, all oh, these servants shall come down uh, to me and bow down to me saying, get out. Get out and all the, the people who follow you, go out. The Lord often vindicates his people in this way. Isaiah 26.11 says, Lord, when your hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they will see and be ashamed for the envy of people. Yes, the fire of your enemies shall devour them. They will be ashamed. The Lord often brings shame in this manner, to those who plot against the people of God. We read that Jerusalem is sometimes made a burdensome stone, a heavy stone, to those who would heave at it. In Zechariah 12.3 we read, And it shall happen in that day that, will, that I will make Jerusalem a, a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. But yet, although they are demonstrating, a, 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 they're apologizing, it is not true repentance, is it? Because they apologize, but it's like, apologize, but go away, don't, don't, don't stay here. If they truly were apologizing in a way of repentance, kind of like the Philippian jailer, the evidence would be that they would say, please stay, please stay longer. We want to hear more of the gospel. No, they just wanted to apologize for their own sakes so that they wouldn't come under the wrath of the Roman Empire. And then they would they, they just go, please go away. I, we don't want to have to deal with you anymore. But nonetheless, it is a victory. It is a vindication of God. There is a, um, a record in the, in the 1900s, some of you maybe know this story better than, than me, but I, uh, I've read this recently, uh, the Chinese Boxer Revolution in the 1900s. And uh, Christians were killed. And uh, the, there was a pressure, uh, international pressure exerted in, uh, towards China government at the time to pay reparations as a, a form of apology. So often that's the form where we find, how we find uh, civil authorities apologizing, right? It's good enough. It's the kind of apology we get nowadays. Uh, someone does something wrong against you, not only civil authorities, even uh, commercial institutions. If they did you any wrong, it's not so much the apology, they, they pay you something, they give you a voucher, or they give you a, in, uh, uh, reparations, they give you an indemnization kind of thing. And in the, the Chinese government was, uh, was giving uh, reparations. Hudson Taylor, the, the, chi uh, the missionary to China, and the China Inland Mission refused 
that money. They refused to receive any money from, from the government. Although they lost missionaries, some of their brothers and sisters were killed in that revolution, in that rebellion. They refused and they offered forgiveness. And as a result, the Shanxi province, province government issued a proclamation in, uh, in one of the newspapers extolling Jesus Christ because of the, the generosity and the Christ-like attitude of the Christians in that land. Because of the forgiveness and the forbearance of Hudson Taylor and the China Inland Mission. Might not have been a full repentance. It is a good enough repentance at times. So Paul and Silas, and I need to haste to, to conclude, but Paul and Silas, they, be the, they, they are released. Again, as is their practice, they, they come into to the, to the, to the city, they encourage and they strengthen the believers there. Uh, the believers, you might notice, are meeting in Lydia's house, are meeting in this wealthy woman's house. There is a church gathering there. They are praying there and they come in and, and they... they they see the brethren there. If it was just Lydia's house, how, how would they find the, the rest of the brethren there? The rest of the brethren are gathering as a church in Lydia's house. They, they encourage them. Probably they, Paul said something along the lines, same things that he said to the, to the, to the churches in Lystra, in Derby, and, and in Antioch. Through many tribulations, one must enter the kingdom of God, brethren. Be encouraged. Don't let these things push you down or, be, or turn you to be despondent. Just be encouraged. Through many tribulations, one must enter the kingdom of God. So what lessons can we draw from this? On, the, on, the, on this portion of, the, of God's word, one of them I've already referred to, is the double citizenship of the believer. We are citizens of, of earth. We are nationals in a, in a national, uh, or we have a national passport. Um, but the other is that we have a heavenly citizenship. And by virtue of our heavenly citizenship, we have been regenerated, redeemed from guilt and sin, adopted into the family of God. And by virtue of our earthly citizenship, yes, we, ha we have responsibilities, e even as Christians, even as citizens of heaven, because we have earthly citizenship, because we are here, we have responsibilities. We are told that we are to respect, to be submissive to, to the authorities of our uh, nation, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, 17. And we, didn't, we, we all know about these passages by now. They've been quoted very often in the last uh, two years. We are to submit ourselves to, you, to them. Titus 3.1 We are to, to pay our taxes. We are to help in the national effort. We are to pray for them. 1 Timothy 2.12 2, 1 or 12 that is. Nonetheless, nonetheless, when those civil liberty, when those civil authorities command us to do something that goes against uh, our heavenly citizenship, 
when our earthly citizenship gets uh, into battle with our heavenly citizenship, the Word of God tells us of only one thing that we are to do. We are to obey God rather than man. We find ample example of this in Scripture. It's the it's the the midwives in Egypt. It's Daniel, Sadrach, Mesach, and Abednego. It's Peter telling the the the, the Jewish authorities. After the Jewish authorities told them, don't preach this man no more. Don't talk about Christ no more in this city. And they said to them, well, you judge if it's better to obey God, or if it's, if rather we must obey God than man. The second lesson that I want to draw you to, and I'm going to have to quickly summarize it a little bit more than I was intending to is the lesson of meekness we are told that we the Christian believer is to be like their savior meek our Lord Jesus said the meek shall inherit the earth we are to be meek but being meek is not the same thing as being weak we so often confuse these things. Being meek is not being weak. In fact, being meek according to Christian standards is to be convicted in humility, yes. Being meek is being even-tempered, being stable. Uh, the Dutch theologian Abrakel, he said that uh, we, we are not to be irrit irritable. We are not to be... Uh, like a sp uh, many spines as a porcupine has or does not to be prickly as a thorn bush that is what Christian meekness is and you might ask was Paul being meek in this passage he, he virtually uh, started the, 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 the form of protest that we now know as being as doing a sit-in. We we saw the Extinction Rebellion uh, a few years ago, just before the pandemic. Do a sit-in in the in the in London city centre. All those streets, they they sat down and they said, "We will not move until the government makes the decision that we want." I'm not here uh, giving any kind of uh, endorsement, but that's what they did, isn't it? And that's what Paul did as well. He said, we will not move until we find the government of this city to do the, the right thing. You want to put us out quietly? No, we want to be, this, to be public acknowledged, acknowledged publicly. You see, sometimes we think of meekness and quietness as being a, some form of uh, something that prevents us to speaking from speaking out against injustice we must not rail as we just read in in Psalm 141 providentially we must not rail against the those who do us wrong but we can and we should speak out against injustice especially when that speaking out against injustice is not self-serving but is it, it it's for the benefit of others 
The Apostle Paul confronted the, the, the civil magistrates over the unjust judici judicial procedures. He even asserted his own legal rights when doing so. And I don't think Paul was being unchristlike when he did that. I think he was even expressing something of Christ's likeness, Christ who came to bring justice to the nations, to be the deliverer of the oppressed. And finally, the last lesson, or the third lesson, is one of Christian unity. Just as we take a step back quickly and look at the whole chapter 16, we see salvation. We see Different kinds of people being saved in different, uh, from, in, from different backgrounds, but being saved into unity in the same community. We see this in the, in the way that God saves Gentiles and saves uh, Jews. How God in the New Testament church has broken all those walls of separation. I, I, I'm very sad if you, if you, I think it was yesterday even, I came across a church not, not very far from, from here, and I'm not criticizing the church. They, they apparently are a reformed Calvinistic church, small r reformed Calvinistic church. But I was surprised to see their name, and I'm not going to say the name, but they have multicultural in, in the name. They have, it says so, multicultural church. And I was surprised because does that mean that all the other churches are not multicultural? Are we all, are, are we saying that, uh, it's kind of like a truism. You say a multicultural cultural church, you, you're, you're saying the same thing in two ways. A church is to be multicultural. Doesn't, you don't need a qualifier there. It's kind of like a small bit of virtue signaling there, but... But we see this in, the, in Acts 16, don't we? People from different backgrounds, both economically, uh, ethnically, even spiritually and morally. We see a, a woman, a Gentile woman being saved. She was rich. She was a businesswoman. We see a slave girl being saved. She was a slave. She had nothing to put to her. So in fact, spiritually, at the moment of her salvation, she was under the most spiritual, the biggest of spiritual darknesses. She was possessed, and God saved her. And we see this Philippian jailer, a middle class, perhaps, if there was such a thing in the Roman Empire, a regular Joe kind of person, a Roman citizen, not a, a, a from, from a good background, and I think what is implied here in the wisdom of the Spirit is to show us that God saves far and wide. That his desire for the church, that his design for the church is for the church to be a, a, a gathering of all nations, of all tribes, of all tongues. And he's bringing that about. 
The one thing that we have in common, which is the best thing that we could have in common, is not that we share the same skin color, it's not that we share the same uh, passport, it's not that we share the same uh, uh, language, it's not that we share any kind of other thing. In fact, as I look to this group, we see that we have all kinds of different interests. There's one thing that we share in common, that is the most glorious thing that we could have, is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in Him that we are united. And that's what makes the church glorious. That's what makes the church glorious. Paul said in his letter to the, to the Galatians, uh, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who, do not, uh, who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. It is the fact that we are all members of the body of Christ. And finally, lastly, I know I said lastly uh, the last one, but finally let us rejoice as we see this, that the gospel does not stop, notwithstanding the apathy, the resistance, the persecution and the oppression, notwithstanding all of the, the things that the devil in this chapter 16 has thrown in the way of uh, Paul and his companions, notwithstanding the, all the, the, the gates of hell pushing against the church, the gospel went forth, people were saved. I, I believe that in this passage, as you read that the brethren were there, we are to imply that there were more people. It wasn't just Lydia, it wasn't just the, the, the slave girl, it wasn't just the, the the Philippian jailer it was many more there were other brethren there already maybe some of those prisoners who were hearing and had heard of the of the of the of the gospel as Paul and Silas sang in prison they were converted the gospel does not stop the Lord will build up his church the Lord is building up his church today let us be confident let us be trusting that even as we look at, as we finish looking at chapter 16, the first city in Europe that was reached by the gospel by the Apostle Paul, even as we look at this, let us rejoice to see that the first city was the first harvest, was the first place where the Lord saved. And nearly 2,000 years later, while we are still waiting from the, for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we still have a gospel to proclaim. And there is still a harvest out, out there to be ripped, reaped for the Lord. There is still the same answer to that question that the Philippian jailer asked. What must I do to be saved? There's people out there who must or will hear that message. So let us offer them. As we go into this week, let us tell, go out and tell the people, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. Because the Lord still saves today. And he will continue to save until his coming. Let us sing.